My name is Alex Kashuta, and this is the Subversive Podcast. It's an excuse for me to talk to some of the most interesting people on the heterodox to heretic spectrum. Everyone from iconoclast philosophers to rogue scientists to real post-BuzzFeed journalists and our true intellectual elite, Twitter anonymous accounts. In short, they're quite subversive. Enjoy. Today, I'm joined by Samo Berja. He is a founder of Bismarck Analysis, a consulting firm that investigates the political and institutional landscape of society, and also a research fellow at the Long Now Foundation, where he studies how institutions can endure for centuries and millennia. Um, he's also a very deep thinker. He's, a, he's one of these system thinkers. And uh, I am very, very glad to be speaking to him uh, because I've been following his work for a while. Um, and I think he, he has a, a great lens on uh, the, the macro things that are happening in society at the moment. Welcome. Thank you for having me on the show. I've been delighted to follow you on Twitter as well. Oh, perfect. Thank you so much. Um, the one major thing that you've been known for is the great founder theory, which is kind of a condensation of, of your thoughts about um, the, the nature of, of institutional progress, you know, where, uh, how uh, societies are formed, where they're going, where they'll end. So could you give us a, a little bit of a, an overview of, of kind of what, what the main points are and, and kind of how, how it works, with what the mechanics are? Right. Um, it seems to me that, you know, it's one of these questions that everyone tries to answer, right? Yeah. Everyone, in fact, has a, a theory of history, how they believe the world works. Uh, if you talk to a techie from San Francisco, they're going to be convinced that it's, you know, the unrelenting march of technology, where, say, politics and culture are epiphenomena of things like the printing press, the internet, radio, television. If you talk to someone that works in uh, finance or economics, they're going to be convinced that it's a matter of uh, economic growth, of compounding advantages, of material accumulation, and that technology is an epiphenomena and a side effect of economic progress, as funny as that sounds, right? And the same again for culture and the same again for ideas. If you talk to an intellectual, right, uh, either a wild-bred intellectual that has read their own books and is self-educated, or, you know, someone who is supposed to be an intellectual by trade, say someone that lives in Boston, someone in Cambridge, Massachusetts, uh, they'll likely talk about the history of ideas and how ideas are the ones that really shape technology, economics, and all of that. So what I'm saying here is that everyone, at least implicitly, if not explicitly, adopts a view of what it is that truly matters, that truly shapes the world on the longer time scale, on the longer epoch. Um, I certainly think that, say, things like the physical world, uh, the laws of physics, um, uh, the nature of our universe, right, say, increasing entropy, uh, natural selection, all of these things are relevant for shaping humanity as we are. However, what is the primary force shaping human society? Here, I'm unconventional. I actually think it's humans. And I'm double unconventional because I think it's some humans and not other humans. I think that most people in almost all times and places adhere to what is done by their peers, adhere to the things that they can personally test, that they can personally see in their lives. You know, it's, it sounds rather interesting, but 
a particular conception of marriage, a particular conception of family, a particular conception of community is something people ingest through socialization. And we know this for a fact from all of the differences you see around the world, right? And historically in Eurasia, you might have had differences between uh, polygamous and monogamous societies. And to any person born into either of these, they both seem very natural and even unavoidable, right? You have all Mm -hmm. sorts of arguments to say why they're unavoidable. So I'm a little bit of a social constructivist just because however social norms are constructed, you know, it doesn't mean that you should necessarily deconstruct them. You know, my house is a social construct. Please don't deconstruct it. I live in it, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, so where do these things come from? These, these social constructs, these that eventually go all the way from simple things like village family to complex things like, you know, the U.S. federal government with, you know, uh, an, an FBI, which is kind of a rebranded secret police from back in the day, the IRS, NASA, Um, you know, we might see again, things like Harvard university that I mentioned, you know, based, based in Massachusetts, where do these things come from? Right. And I think that they are the, they are an origin based on the ideas of particular uh, founders. Now, who exactly do I call a great founder? Is it just someone that builds a great company? No, no, it's not. What I'm proposing is that they are something like the inventors of these social technologies, right? That if you look and comb through history, you eventually find either individuals or very small groups of people that cause a sudden jump in institutional complexity. So I don't think these institutions evolve slowly, grinding, each generation learning a little bit. I kind of actually imagine them as each generation sort of maintaining an essentially static system with occasional breakthroughs where you see a sudden transformation of society. And I think history backs me up, right? There are places where you, in the span of 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, see an immense jump in, uh, in this kind of organizational complexity. Now, who might be examples of such great founders? They're actually relatively varied. I would give for Chinese civilization the relatively boring answer of Confucius, where Confucius engages in a big scholarly effort Uh, not only a scholarly effort to reconstruct what he perceives to be the golden age of Zhao China, uh, but also the rituals of that era. Note, rituals sound so mundane to us, except when we see them in a cult. If we see a cult performing rituals, we know how powerful they are. We find it spooky. We find it scary. Well, society is kind of a cult. You know, something looks spooky and scary until everyone's doing it, and it's changes everyone's psychological states and everyone's social relations. And then we just find it completely normal, right? So, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe a good way to think about it is that, you know, Confucius is doing like wild psychological and social experiments all the time to try to figure out how interrelations in society should, uh, should occur. The second important part of him, uh, 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 the second important thing about him that makes him not just a thinker, but kind of this great founder figure is that he creates a school of thought that follows his thinking that has also a viable strategy to implement this as social reform, right? They strive to be, they strive to be and succeed to be the advisors of princes and kings and strive to educate and control essentially uh, who are the individuals that are going to run the imperial bureaucracy that comes to dominate Chinese society. 
So it's a pretty straightforward line from Confucius's process of ex discovery, experimentation, scholarship, through a movement of intellectuals that grabs the imperial state to a multi-millennia long social pressure on society. Say in the West, arguably the Catholic Church was engaged in a similar set of social experiments. I'm going to uh, avoid the controversial question of who exactly is the founder of the Catholic Church. Uh, I'll say there are multiple plausible candidates, which is already controversial, right? You said Protestants might be inclined to say that, oh, the Catholic Church is really formed with uh, Constantine the Great, uh, adopting it as the Roman state religion and all of that. So you might have other uh, people who are recognized as prophets, uh, such as, say, Muhammad, uh, and so on. So these, these would all certainly count as great founders. Not everyone who's called a prophet, but anyone who is a sufficiently historically attested prophet that created organizations uh, that um, basically made a religion that formed the core uh, of a major civilization. Uh, I also think sometimes statesmen make the bill. Uh, I feel uh, Charlemagne is best understood as the founder of Western uh, European civilization. I think we should consider it a different, though related, civilization to antiquity. Uh, he reintroduces Latin among scholars by sponsoring study, even though he himself is illiterate. He adopts the title of Roman emperor, right, reviving something that had been a dead tradition in the Western world. He also introduces new systems of feudalism that reshape what's essentially a tribal society into one uh, one led by essentially people who have also fealty to each other, who actually do a form of hostage exchange, right? Mm -hmm. In the Frankish kingdoms of his era, you wouldn't raise your own son. You would send your son to be raised by a different noble family, and you would raise their son. Two good effects come from this. One is enduring social bonds where people understand each other among the nobility. The second one, of course, is, well, it's hostage-taking technology, right? Like, yeah. if the other side misbehaves, well, you have the ultimate guarantee that there will be consequences for them, you know, even yeah. if you can't siege their castle or whatever. So yeah. Charlemagne would be a great example. And, you know, I could talk, say, about Alexander the Great and how the consequences of his conquest and reformed, a reform-shaped civilization for thousands of years. But I think these two are the main types, Right particular, exceptional, founding, heroic leaders, but they have to be institution builders, not just conquerors, or, you know, prophets of major religions. And then, you know, there's odds and ends, a few other people here and there. But the basic idea is that they have the social imagination and the creation and the power to reshape society and set it on a different course than it would have gone otherwise. Right. Say, had Constantine not converted to Christianity, would the Roman Empire ever be Christian? And were the Roman Empire not Christian, would the state religion of the Roman Empire have persisted beyond the fall of the Roman Empire? Would there have been uh, uh, an idea of Europe without Christendom? Likely not. Right. Mm -hmm. What what uh, what do Scandinavians, you know, what do Scandinavians, wayward Romans like the Romanians and German, and, you know, Germans, Slavs and Celts have in common? Like not much. Yes, yes, it's 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 a fascinating uh, hypothesis, and it does it it rings true. I mean, the the, the way you 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 phrase it, uh, it's it definitely has uh, has some heft. Um, I'm curious um, if you've investigated kind of the the mechanism of, of what sets 
a potential great founder apart mm -hmm. from a quack or someone who's, you know, just a, um, someone who's, you know, maybe maybe a cult leader or a, a small, a small, um, you know, a small fry in, in the in the great scheme of things. And kind of what's what is it that, um, yeah, fuels the rise of, of movements behind the founder? Well, um, that's a very interesting question. I mean, uh, uh, to be a little bit controversial, I think there's a continuum and you have to pass a certain bar of quality of social engineering, quality of resource gathering. Um, are you much familiar with the origin of, of Mormonism and the Church of Latter-day Saints and uh, how that developed around Joseph Smith? Uh, vaguely, not, not deeply familiar, but yeah, if you could go into right. that, that sounds good. Right. It's, I, I don't want to necessarily dive into that, but that's an example of basically a new religion forming in recorded history in the modern U.S. And we see that a gathering of enough people happens that when the U.S. federal government ends up being in conflict with him, right, when persecution happens, so when political opposition happens, there's enough, uh, enough of a following and a coherence and a leadership that after Joseph Smith, uh, you know, ends up being killed by a mob, uh, his successors take the, take out uh, this group of followers to Utah, literally creating many new towns and cities, uh, speculate about creating an independent state called Desiree, decide that that's not geopolitically viable and become the territory of Utah, right? And until this day, like the demographics of that area are predominantly Mormon. So maybe in 500 years, if the Mormon faith becomes numerous enough, if people that are members of the Mormon faith, you know, control positions of power, maybe then we can call Joseph Smith the great founder. And if not, well, it's historically interesting, but it didn't change the course of human history. So a little bit of it is after the effect. I think that there are many people who sort of in essence might be great founder types, uh, that, however, just are plain unlucky through the course of their life or through the situation they emerge in. Say the prophet Mani of Manichaeism mm -hmm. is, you know, has all the traits of a great founder, but the Manichaean religion is extinct by over a thousand years. Had history gone a little bit differently, maybe, you know, today we would understand it to be the dominant religion of Persia, the origin of all of this, you know, philosophy, a big influence in Christianity and all of that, because it was a big and important religion for a few centuries. It just then went into decline. The personality types, though, do show some real individual differences when I look at them. Um, you know, at the risk of mentioning L. Ron Hubbard, I think L. Ron Hubbard of Scientology is very interesting. He's doing social experiments, psychological experiments, perhaps not too different from what Confucius presumably did a few thousand years ago. Um, but I feel that there is a higher grade of uh, interpersonal charisma, social awareness, and tact that some of them display, right? So even if you're fighting the authorities, right? Even if you are proposing a radically different vision of life, you deeply understand the existing social order. You like understand who is in power, what they are like. You understand what the educated people in society want or crave. You can relate to financiers and you know get at least uh, rich old widows. You know, rich old widows are historically the main sponsor of crazy new ideas. It's funny, <laughs> but that seems to be the case. And the second one is 
uh, relatively, you know, relatively bored uh, aristocrats, right? That would be the second most common sponsor of weird ideas and social movements historically. Well, you know, if I joke a little bit, uh, we recently saw the richest woman in the world, um, Jeff Bezos's ex-wife, uh, donate a huge amount of money to foundations. Imagine she had a personal intellectual interest or social interest in a movement and put 20 or $30 billion into that rather than mainstream foundations. I guarantee you, U.S. society would be very different. So who is the person that knows how to impress a Lorenzo de' Medici or a former Mrs. Bezos? <laughs> that is an important skill. Arguably, Confucius himself, for example, fails at this skill. Arguably, Plato fails at this skill, right? Plato is, uh, for a brief time, uh, you know, employed to tutor the son of the tyrant of the city of Syracuse in modern day, you know, southern Italy, right? Back then, it's Greek colonies, it's their cultural space. Uh, you know, he wrote a bunch of books on the perfect city-state, the perfect society. All of those ideas might have had an impact, but he lost out in the court politics of Syracuse and was quickly exiled. His student, Aristotle, though, became the tutor of Alexander the Great quite successfully. Therefore, the difference between Aristotle and Plato might not be a difference of brilliance at all, of raw brilliance. It's not really even a difference of do I get into trouble or not. It seems to be a difference of the ability to navigate the court politics, right? So Aristotle succeeds when he goes to the Greek kingdom of Macedonia and tutors Alexander the Great, um, and Plato you know, doesn't when he tries to be the tutor uh, to the to the heir in Syracuse. Mm -hmm. so, yeah, so, so, so this ability to navigate political intrigue, the ability to secure a type of funding, uh, and the ability ultimately to get enough people in society on your side that you're not immediately made an outcast and a pariah. Mm -hmm. So it, it seems like there's, there's definitely a very big kind of environmental um, component there. So there are mm -hmm. probably environments that are more conducive to the, to yes. the rising of, of great founders and some that are less so. And um, it is interesting to me to see, um, you're probably familiar with Peter Thiel's, uh, you know, uh, thesis that, um, you know, innovation has slowed, um, you know, we were kind of, uh, uh, suffocated by 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 regulation things are very sclerotic in the west and it doesn't seem to be um, a place where you know it's, it's not necessarily conducive for a great founder which like you said needs to have resources capacities charisma uh, that that branch out over different fields uh, and he kind of needs to bring all these together and have kind of the leverage to, to make things work uh, which which kind of interacts with this big regulatory managerial apparatus that is now dominant in the west um, and it seems to be like the only place where these founders are um, are arising is Silicon Valley or in tech, which because of its complexity and just of the way it works, the, the intricacies of tech uh, is almost a space apart. It's the only relatively wild west that we still have. So I think it's it's really interesting to look at that. Is is that the only place where where founders? I mean, they're they're actually called founders in Silicon Valley. Is that the only place where they're where they're left? Is that the only uh, space where they can arise, or is there some other place where you have a feeling that there there might be new founders, um, you know, mm -hmm. popping up or having the leverage to become uh, these forces of nature? Right. Right. 
Well, Silicon Valley is interesting, right? I certainly think it's the center of technological innovation. I certainly think that it is a place where in America the most uh, eccentricity ever is tolerated, right? Like you don't end up being an Isaac Newton unless you're willing to, you know, stick a needle in your eye uh, and unless, unless beside, you know, weird things such as, you know, studying uh, gravity, you're also trying to, you know, figure out uh, alchemy. And one of these works out, the other one doesn't, right? But at the time when you're exploring, both of them seem viable. So Silicon Valley would tolerate an Isaac Newton. Um, it might even tolerate, you know, a Joseph Smith. Uh, so I think that actually means that it's it's doing fairly well in terms of that aspect of it. I'm not completely sure who of the crop of founders, uh, the technology founders, would actually reach the bar of a great founder, of someone who refactored civilization as a whole. Uh, I wouldn't exclude it. It's certainly possible, right? There's been, you know, maybe Facebook will be a thousand year institution as dystopian as that might sound, but really it is a fundamentally new way of orienting yourself to masses of people and your immediate social circle, but also the wider world through news selection. You know, arguably whoever is on the Facebook equivalent of the, the safety and trust committee or the Twitter equivalent is essentially the editor in chief of America, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> More important yeah. than any given magazine editor. So these are very important, um, very important innovations. Uh, they're civilization shaping probably over the course of like the next few hundred years. Um, but, it, but I think it's difficult really to predict what other areas of opportunity might exist. Say, I would actually claim that in the Western world, uh, you know, if I could decide whether Britain leaves or stays in the EU, I would have probably leaned towards stay. My continental bias is showing. However, the fact that Britain has left the EU makes it suddenly a place of importance. It's possible for someone of extreme ambition to dedicate their life to undertaking a serious project with Britain's national destiny as the mission of their life. That sounds kind of you know odd or silly, but really, we're not that far away from the age of, you know, when people like Charles de Gaulle were around. I basically think without Charles de Gaulle, France would not have nuclear weapons, would not be considered an important power, and would have continued to wallow in a kind of national humiliation and retreat in ambitions. Uh, today, France is a second-tier power, but it's not a third-tier power, right? And Charles de Gaulle saw it as an almost spiritual, religious mission to do so. Again, we could invoke people like Churchill and so on. I feel there was more space once in politics in the Western world for people that are larger than life. Currently, we're smaller than life when it comes to political figures, right? We're smaller mm -hmm. than life. We, we have a strong selection against the type of social creativity, imagination, but also towards ind against individual power. I think we become very afraid as soon as we see someone that might be Churchill, that might be de Gaulle, that might be a George Washington. We want to tear them down. So in the political space in the West, there's an artificial ceiling of quality that prevents us from getting a Lee Kuan Yew. However, Britain, by breaking the mold in Europe, opens the space for more interesting leadership in the future, right? You might in fact see a Britain that because it desperately needs to do something that's not the default, right? Because Britain cannot copy the EU. Britain as a tiny EU makes no sense. 
Britain as uh, a state of the United States also makes no sense. Uh, sorry, British friends, but the British Empire is not coming back. So the idea of a union with Australia, New Zealand, Canada, that's not going to work out. So in fact, Britain doesn't really have a good place to go. But that actually means they would be forced to pick something new. And if you're forced to pick something new, well, a great founder might come along. Right? So, so, so British politics is something I would watch over the next 30 or 40 years. Uh, I would also watch Eastern European uh, economic development. In particular, industrial innovations might come out of Poland. I would also look at uh, Latin American religious development, where Latin America has been swept by big religious movements. Right now, it's the evangelicals. But it's kind of weird, right? Evangelicals are mm -hmm. like, you know, very, very American-centric and so on. They don't seem like the optimal religious movement if you wanted to sweep through Latin America. So I suspect Latin America right now is open to various kinds of religious innovation. So you might uh, see new small communities of either, you know, comparable unusualness to say the Amish appear, or you might have large scale religious movements. It's hard for us to remember, but you know, it wasn't always just like, you know, wokeness versus anti-wokeness. Once in European history, say being Protestant or Catholic was extremely important, the cause of the mm -hmm. 30 years war. Uh, you would have people, you know, move to Geneva or move to the the Netherlands or move to do to the New World to practice their, you know, version of Christianity that they invented five minutes ago. Uh, if there is such a place in the world, I think right now it's Latin America, right? So you might see religious founders from Latin America, political founders in, say, Britain, or maybe places like Poland, economic leaders, because I I, I think on its current trajectory, Poland will not only reach German levels of economic development by mid-century, they're going to surpass them, right? I think that's super important and I could talk a little bit about that. And I think it's one of the things no one is expecting. Um, for, the, yes. for the United States itself, I do think that the space remains for an innovation in how society and technology relate to each other. Uh, people often talk about China as going to the future mass surveillance state. But I would actually say the U.S. is culturally more innovative in how it's responding to information technology and how to integrate information technology with things like media and so on. And whether this becomes, you know, a dystopian or utopian integration, I think that kind of depends on developments in that space. So you might see the equivalent of a, of a new media mogul arise in the U.S. They might not be Silicon Valley based. They might be based in Austin. They might be based in New York. Um, they might just be anywhere, right? Also, of course, if, if, you know, Bitcoin, in fact, becomes the new world reserve currency for the next thousand years and Satoshi Nakamoto turns out to have been an individual, then he clearly qualifies as a, as a great founder. And I, I bet whoever it was, they didn't live in Silicon Valley. It was too weird an idea. I think, you know, it was, it was as weird or weirder than Isaac Newton or Joseph Smith. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's interesting that you you mentioned Poland. I think this is this is one thing that we have in common. Not not necessarily being Polish, but being from from Eastern Europe, kind of uh, children of the Eastern Bloc. And I feel like we're we're probably of, of relatively the same generation, uh, kind of having a, a taste of communism, but not the full experience, and then living through transition for a little bit, uh, whatever that that flavor was in, in Slovenia and, and in Romania. It was. Uh, yeah, still still quite communist. Um, but kind of what, what's your perspective on on why the 
the you know the, the kind of the subpar development of the Eastern Bloc. There's all sorts of theories about this. You know, why was there always kind of the the, the difference between Eastern Europe and Western Europe? Uh, and then you know, kind of what can we expect for for the region? Uh, and like you said, there, it's a very um, heterogeneous region. Uh, it's, it's kind of it's, it's hard to compare places like Poland, which you know have seen almost like an, an economic boom, with kind of laggards like Romania. When the Slovenia is also a case apart, so it's uh, it's it's an interesting place, and I'm, I'm curious, kind of what what your theory is of, of why it is so interesting and so apart. I was certainly deeply influenced by uh, growing up in in Slovenia, newly independent. Right, I only experienced about three years of communism. As a three year old, your your socio political views aren't very sophisticated, right? Yeah, but <laughs> you you hear from your parents, you hear from your relatives. For them, it was yesterday, right? When you're growing up, for them, it was just a few years ago. Even if for you, it's like, you know, almost since before you were born. Uh, and let alone conversations with grandparents, where my grandparents even had experience of the pre-communist world, of pre-communist uh, Slovenia and Yugoslavia. So they had the most perspective in a way. Um, and the, the transition from one political system to the next, I think very much influenced my view, where uh, one of the conversations I recall having relatively early with my dad is, uh, he made the point, you know, someone, no one made me retake economics after the end of socialism. My economics degree remained valid and I continued to have basically the same job doing basically the same things as the CFO uh, of an energy company. Mm -hmm. To me, that was, it blew my mind, right, as a 10-year-old, because I took ideas, I think, a little bit too seriously. <laughs> the, the funny part is, why would the system of social differentiation stay the same if the entire basis of legitimacy of the system completely turned on its head? Um, and I think that a lot of people tend to think this. One differentiation, you ask the question, why is it a, a heterogeneous region? I think one of them is, in many of these places, it was, in fact, the exact same people that remained in charge after the fall of communism than before. Romania is the most extreme case, but note, Romania is the only case where the former communist leader was put on trial and put to death. Right? Mm -hmm. It's the only such case. In Poland, uh, they have lustration where if you were of a particular rank in the communist state, you could no longer, you could no longer hold office, basically. You were kicked out of government. In Slovenia, there was basically strong continuity. Right? There was no barrier to being a former communist official and being a democratically elected leader. In fact, nearly all the politicians had continuity through this period. Part of that difference might be places that where communism was mostly a Russian imposition versus, say, Yugoslavia, where Tito's revolution occurred semi-independently, though, of course, with British and Soviet support. Mm -hmm. uh, and places where you know, like say in, in, in Ukraine or Belarus, right? Like communism was also a domestic phenomenon because they used to be part of the Russian empire versus you go to the Czech Republic. The Czech Republic for all intents and purposes was kind of an Eastern European, sorry, a Western European country. They had enough industrial potential in the 1940s that Germany's industrial potential went up a little bit when they annexed Bohemia as it was, as it was called and as it's still called. Uh, so it, it's, a dis, it's a differentiated region. So some of the underdevelopment, I think, is just a consequence of it's not Western versus Eastern Europe. It's Western Europe versus the world. Western Europe just ran ahead very fast with the Industrial Revolution. 
right, and had a significant development advantage, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Japan was way behind until arguably as late as the 1970s, and they had started trying to catch up in the 1870s, right, with, you know, the interlude of World War II and the destruction of that. But still, it was clearly a trend line of industrialization, development, modernization. Uh, Russia arguably attempted this catch-up, this long catch-up, completely failed. So I think part of the reason definitely is in the prolonged uh, period, the prolonged period of uh, communist rule. And I think there was a failure to do economic development as well as, say, Western Europe did, or say today China does, despite China also nominally being communist. But I also believe the sheer destructiveness of the world wars was felt more by Eastern Europe than Western Europe, Mm -hmm. right? The world's highest GDPs per capita in 1946 were, uh, I think it was like, you know, the United States, Switzerland, and Denmark. So basically only Denmark was occupied and only lightly occupied, right? So all the places that weren't trashed by World War II. So I do think that that's a big factor. Um, another factor was, as I said, that they were late to industrializations, that they were adopters, second, third adopters, rather than the origin of the Industrial Revolution, as say Britain and maybe Belgium were, and then a little bit later also Germany and to a lesser extent France and America. Um, these two differences, I think, actually explain most of it. I think uh, explanations related to, oh, the Orthodox Christian world versus the Catholic world, I think they're exaggerations. I think, say, the cultural differences between the Orthodox and Catholic world, while very important, right? Orthodox being, you know, Russia, uh, Romania, uh, Bulgaria, Greece, uh, Catholic being, you know, Italy, uh, you know, uh, France, these are comparable to the differences between the Catholic world and the Protestant world, right? No one's going to convince me that, say, you know, I'm staying in Portugal right now, you know, hiding from COVID in quarantine like everyone else is. Portugal, I think, is as different from Sweden as, say, France is from Russia, mm-hmm. right? But I don't think the difference between France and Russia is that much greater than the difference between, say, Portugal and Sweden, right? They're the... the um, the integration of the common world is very much the same. And Russian leaders have been looking towards the West and emulating the West for a very long time. St. Petersburg, Russia's second most important city, founded by Peter the Great, who literally spent time incognito in the West, I think it was in the Netherlands, uh, looking at how ships are built. Mm -hmm. But he literally went on a personal expedition with his retinue to find the experts who knew how to build ships and build a new port city in Russia to make it westward facing, but even engaged in cultural reforms like taxing beards to try to just get the Russians <laughs> to look more Western, right? Yeah. So Russia has been a peripheral part of the European system for a very long time. It's been reforming itself to match innovations. Sometimes it even produced innovations, such as, say, cultural innovations like ballet as we know it, right, developed in Russia, um, 19th century Russian literature. Uh, But there was a grand social experiment that failed. There was terrible devastation from the worst war in the last 200 years. And, you know, finally, it just wasn't the core. It was the periphery. It wasn't the place Mm -hmm. where the Industrial Revolution started. 
And I, you know, today, today in Eastern Europe, these different legacies still reflect, right? I mentioned, say, you know, Poland and, and the Czech Republic. If the geopolitics of World War II were a little bit different, these would have been Western European countries by most people's reckoning, right? Mm -hmm. And the other difference is, do you have continuity with the previous government or do you have a complete break with the previous government after yes, the 1990s? There's um, kind of a, another lens on this, which I found personally useful, and, and it is a cultural difference lens, but it's it's more of a, a game theory lens, mm -hmm. um, which you, at least for me, this was this was probably the most jarring effect living in, in Western Europe, because I've, I've, I've lived in Austria, I've lived in Spain, I've lived in England um, for the last better part of 10 years. And um, to me, the, the, the main difference in, in cultural uh kind of social technology that you have between Eastern Europe and Western Europe is the, um, it's kind of the, the, how favorable is it for you as an individual to be a defector in, in these, in these constellations? Like, can you trust yes. you know, the, the, val the value of social trust, you know, which is, is a, it's a hard to set up equilibrium. And I feel like the West in for, for certain reasons has managed to do that, at least in certain, um, yeah, in certain strata of society, um, but the East has not really like if you, you know, everyone talks about Eastern European corruption and, you know, everyone takes a little bit of a bribe and stuff. But uh, it's essentially the way we figured out to make the, the system work, uh, you know, nepotism, kinship uh, relations, all of this stuff is really important here. Um, because if you want to be the first person to be honest in a system like this, where everyone's a defector or everyone's expected to defect, um, you're going to be you're going to be a sucker because it just it just doesn't work. You can't unilaterally decide to to be honest and i feel like a lot of things and, and the sluggishness of evolution here um, is tied to this uh, incentive to defect which is not necessarily what you have in the west though for for many reasons you can say that that's increasing in the west as well because it's quite a heterogeneous society uh, but um, i'm curious what what do you think about this uh, about this added lens to it I think it's a very, I think it's a very predictive lens. I think it's a very good lens. I think a lot of the cultural developments and social technologies that we might see in the Western world over the last 1000 years, starting with Charlemagne, who we mentioned earlier, were things that push you towards higher trust, right? If you imagine starting with a very low trust society, where you might just literally go to war with your neighboring feudal lord, you know, introducing uh, tutelage, which is basically hostage exchange, uh, might push you towards that higher trust equilibria. This is why I think lawgivers are historically very important. They're often people uh, that manage to reform the social space. You know, these these semi-mythical figures uh, like like Moses or uh, Lycurgus of Sparta. I think these are always there was someone real. It might not be the person mythologically attributed to it, but there are deep, deep social reforms that happen. Uh, where mechanisms are introduced into low trust societies to help them bootstrap towards higher levels of trust. I think, you know, there's the classic work on, uh, you know, Protestantism and the spirit of capitalism, uh, writing by Weber and so on, on how the Protestant style of worship, where every individual reads for themselves, argues their faith in a community of religious brothers with a relatively flat hierarchy, that is super conducive to the corporate form. You know how to read your books and your business partners while well, you met them at church. These are not mm -hmm. your kin, right? These are chosen communities. The Protestant religious communities might have been the first chosen communities 
in Western Europe since like antiquity. And honestly, antiquity was not a time of freedom and choice, right? It was a slave-based society as well mm -hmm. with rigid social rules. Um, you know, so I think that that step-by-step -step gradual building up of trust each rested on innovations of this type, right? Innovations like the hostage exchange I mentioned, innovations like uh, religious communities where the trust is essentially built on shared beliefs, uh, things like public law and order where you feel safe walking down the street. Uh, you know, therefore, it makes also sense for you to do all sorts of events in public that otherwise you might have kept inside. One of the features of Southern Europe, when you look at its architecture, is the inner courtyard, right? Mm -hmm. An inner courtyard of either a rural building like a villa or like an urban building is enclosed. Your outside is inside the building, right? Mm -hmm. You have an open air space in the center. Why would you have, you know, a house and a lawn around it if you don't feel safe on the lawn around your house, right? Mm -hmm. So this, this turning from inward to outward also rests on public safety, right? It doesn't just trust it. You can't talk at people like you said and be like, oh yeah, you individually should be open and trusting and collaborative because you'll be taken advantage of over and over and over again. In this game theory sense that uh, you raised, uh, you have to change the game, right? Mm -hmm. The game can be changed through socially enforced mechanisms of various kinds. So for Eastern Europe, I would actually claim that very slowly, its level of social trust is rising because right now I think we just reached the point in Eastern Europe where you can expect business deals to be respected and that it is possible to sue your business partners successfully if they fail to live up to a big contract. I think we kind mm -hmm. of just passed that point and that point was not reached say in 1995, right? Or 1998. But in the West, I think, you know, in Eastern Europe, you have a transition from a low to a high trust society. Hence my very bullish predictions on, say, Poland, Estonia, to a lesser extent, um, Lithuania, Slovenia, the Czech Republic. Um, but in, in uh, the United States, I do think you have a transition from a high trust society to a low trust society. It's not a ratchet. It's not one way progress. It's something that goes up and down throughout history. After the fall of the Roman Empire, I do think we actually went through the late Roman Empire, through a similar transition of high trust towards lower and lower amounts of trust, with endemic civil war kicking in, with overtaxation, with de-urbanization. One of the things people don't realize is that cities, are these engines of economic growth, are only possible by a high enough level of trust. It would be a very pessimistic scenario, and I don't think it's the case, but one could imagine the ongoing pandemic actually being the trigger point where people not just say, oh, you know, I was actually, I was actually miserable in San Francisco or I was miserable in New York, but they actually say, you know what? I couldn't really trust anyone in New York. I couldn't really trust anyone in San Francisco. You know, I'm going to focus on my closer friends and family. Note, an individually correct decision, perfectly good, actually the best decision. However, everyone makes that decision always you in fact have gone down in social trust, not up. So that's one interesting way in which society scale social trust, uh, usually a very good argument for social or cultural conservatives actually diverges from it. Often jumps in social trust happened when people disregarded familial ties 
for ties to strangers, a very weird and unnatural thing to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is this is kind of a, a hot water territory already because you know there's... certainly. <laughs> um, I think neither of us avoids it too much, but no, we, no, we try it's... to be thoughtful. I've, I've actually, yeah, I've, I've talked about this. I mean, this is almost, you know, the, the recipe that I followed fairly recently. I've moved uh, back to Romania from from living in London. Uh, yeah, I was uh, I was definitely a city dweller for a long time. Um, and my main reason was essentially kind of this erosion of social trust and safety and, you know, public spaces and things like that. And also, obviously, the, the cost factor. So there were many things going into it. But um, it's... Um, it's, it's definitely a, a, a big factor for a lot of people. And I, I like the fact that you mentioned that there is a tipping point to these things because there's a tipping point to many things, um, which is a, another thing that I wanted to, to pick up with you. It's this, um, this concept of, you know, of, of brain drain that, um, you know, kind of a lot of people who are you know, fairly intelligent from, from kind of more peripheral countries um, do move to the, to the more developed countries. Um, and typically, at least in the last 10 years, it was the case for Eastern Europe that people would not come back because they would, you know, they would find more success in, in the West. They would, you know, become either elite or, you know, established within the, the ranks of, uh, of, of Western uh, power structures, and they would kind of stay there. Um, do you think because we, we see this kind of um, relocalization of things, this might be a good thing for more peripheral countries to kind of get get a little chunk of their elites back to people who can maybe contribute locally rather than than uh, you know be part of the the governing superstructure at the at the center of the empire. Yeah, there are two things here. One is your physical location and where you have your social networks and where you invest your efforts. And second one is your aspirations. What where you direct your ambitions, where you direct the resources that you have locally. Um, part of what I w- was uh, talking about earlier with Britain leaving the EU, suddenly opening its national destiny, is that, as funny as it sounds, for people living in London, they didn't have British ambitions. They had European ambitions. They had global ambitions, right? Mm-hmm. Like their um, aspirations were towards uh, things like the EU. Uh, and now they might become, again, a thing of Britain itself. So for Eastern Europe, I see the first ending so the brain drain of all talented eastern europeans go to germany or london and never return has now become they sometimes return um maybe they eventually will always return maybe eventually they won't even go right already warsaw itself is a immigration magnet for say ukraine right for mm-hmm. people from ukraine um but th- this enables the transfer of tacit knowledge, skill, skilled labor, entrepreneurial uh, change, and also, let me be provocative, reverse colonization, where if someone goes from Poland, having lived in London for 10 years, they come back to Poland. They have all of these like ways in which they're very critical of London and you know they don't think the multiculturalism quite work works. Mm-hmm. but are absolutely aghast at the jokes their Polish colleagues who stayed in Poland are making. <laughs> at that point, you, you are assimilating your homeland as much as you yourself once were assimilating the West. And I, I certainly see it for myself returning to Slovenia. And I don't know if you saw this experience where you're kind of a Londoner in Romania, like absolutely. a little bit. Definitely a, so, a Western European person in Romania, for sure. Right, right. And, and um, you certainly see some small elements of convergence in some ways in which uh, Romania stayed very, very different, right? Um, at least that's what I observe in Slovenia. 
So I think that people going to the West and going back East bring some Western culture with them, hopefully the best rather than the worst. Uh, you have a return of talent. But I don't know whether Eastern Europeans are in the differentiation I made earlier about where your social capital is and where you aspire to deploy it. I think the Eastern Europeans going back to Eastern Europe are still looking West. A stronger example is the Chinese Americans returning to China or Chinese citizens studying in the United States. They don't stay in the U.S. anymore. The majority of them goes back to China. I think those students, their aspirations, not just their social capital, but their aspirations have oriented towards China, not the U.S. Mm -hmm. Right. So the, the, the key question I would have is, uh, do we reach not just the tipping point of the brain drain is reversed for some regions like Eastern Europe, but the tipping point of, and the people feel that their future, their aspirations, their most idealistic, grandiose impulses are best exercised by your home society rather than the imperial center. Uh, mm -hmm. Because that's the point, I think, when you, when you get huge achievement. Like, look, if your aspirations are about the imperial center, you should just live in the imperial center. If your aspirations are for the periphery, well, okay, then going to the periphery is going to a place that you believe in the future will be its own center. You, you mentioned Austria, right? Like, uh, if you did you spend time in Vienna by any chance? Yeah, that's, that's where I studied. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you can certainly see how it's a beautiful city and how a hundred years ago, it would have been plausible to live there and think it's kind of the center of the world, even though objectively it wasn't, even back mm -hmm. then like the beautiful architecture, the like cafes and everything. Uh, the intellectual life of Vienna a hundred years ago was unrivaled. Mm -hmm. And I think it's actually one of the prerequisites and maybe one of the reasons, say, ancient Greece and Renaissance Italy were so intellectually productive is because in a small deluded way, people from Florence, people from Venice, people from Rome, all thought they were the center of the world. It's a little bit deluded. It's a little bit narcissistic of a city-state to think this. But if you're an intellectual living in a such, such a city-state, it's easier to get patrons. You're like, I want to produce a new kind of art, or I have a philosophy that'll change the world. Unless mm -hmm. the prince is a little bit of a megalomaniac themselves, they're never going to look on it favorably. Unless the citizens of Florence are a little bit megalomaniacs and are like, well, of course the new Athens is Florence. <laughs> it doesn't work. And I think, I think Vienna had, you know, Freud, for better or worse, it had, you know, Lenin, it had everyone who mattered was kind of in a v Viennese cafe in 1910, even though it was no longer the economic center of the world, it was the status center of the world. Mm -hmm. So for Eastern Europe, especially, I would look at what is a cool Eastern European city where people can be deluded that it's the most important place in the world, you know, like New Yorkers are. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, if if you were to be the um, totalitarian dictator of uh, Slovenia for a year, <laughs> what you know, what would the the policies be, or could there be policies where you could that you could implement to uh, encourage the formation of this delusion um, to to have people? <laughs> is there is there anything? I mean, at least to to create an environment that would be. Um, 
I don't know, could could provoke, could could start start the the seeds of of creating a, a great founder because essentially that's that's what mm. you need. You know, you need that charismatic energy to to pull people back. You know, the kind of reverse magnetism from the West. Uh, is there anything that you know these countries can do? Um, you know, policies. I know these things are really stunted and weird. Whenever you say, "Oh, we're just going to make an innovation center," and there's never innovation it never happens in the innovation center. It's kind of weak. Yeah, yeah, it's weak. Yeah. Yeah. But if you had oh. all the powers, absolutely totalitarian, you know, totalitarian. whatever you want. <laughs> well, first off, I, I uh, you know, assuming that I don't really care if I'm put in prison after my reforms are over, right? Like Lycurgus of Sparta, you know, th there's a story that he uh, voluntarily never returned to Sparta after going to the Oracle of Delphi, right? After going to the Oracle <laughs> of Delphi, he goes there and he asks, will my legal reforms work? Right. And they say yes. And because Lycurgus had everyone in Sparta swear an oath that they would adhere to the laws until he returns, he after that never again returns to Sparta. I think the real story is probably that Lycurgus was exiled if, if there was a, a historical a historical Lycurgus. So I think often you're, you're very hated if you do the right things. So having said all of that, Slovenia is a tiny Alpine country with two million people, Catholic heritage, Austrian influence. Slavic language, communist legacy, um, I would engage in some small measure of creative myth-making the way the French do, right? The, it's bizarre that France has managed to convince people in China, people who often have uh, difficulty with alcohol digestion and certainly have difficulty with cheese digestion, to <laughs> buy in massive quantities French cheese and wine. They literally mm -hmm. had classes sponsored by the French cultural ministry in France to teach the Chinese how to eat cheese. Like talk about the you know, forward looking cultural branding, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I think for Slovenia, my, my first attempt would be to create an extremely luxurious retreat center next to the most scenic Alpine lake I could find. You probably know of it, uh, Lake, lake uh, Bled. Mm -hmm. Ever seen of it? The little, it's a it's beautiful, beautiful Alpine lake with an island, with a tiny cute church on the island, with a castle over a cliff overlooking it. You know, the listeners might think I'm making it up, but I recommend you just Google Slovenia. So, okay, mm -hmm. use these extremely beautiful natural locations, close them off to the public, actually close them off to the public, make them luxurious elite retreat centers, and then invest something like 10% like of your cultural capital and billions and billions of euros to try to just make it the next Davos. You know, heck, do it, try to do it. If people are taking skiing vacations in Slovenia rather than Switzerland, it's never gonna be because of the mountains, but you might be able to nudge it a little bit with these other natural assets and create a reoccurring yearly elite center. There are some countries that done weak versions of this, such as like, you know, the Prague Forum or, or stuff in Estonia, um, but it's it's never quite worked. But if you could make that work, maybe make that work. Uh, the second one is radically shrink parliament. Mm -hmm. There should not be 100 people in parliament or more. There should be at most 12 people. And let's say that each of these 12 people gets to have a voting share proportional to the amount of voting that their political party received. So mm -hmm. a very different system. Instead of having seats of representatives, you're just like, Heck, we're a party system. We're never going to escape it. So 
each party representative gets as many votes as the political party they represent has. Uh, the good news about this is that you've just made each of them a very important person in their own right, and people might be really ambitious, extraordinary people might want to be one of 12 members of parliament, mm-hmm. rather than one of 100 members of parliament, or in the U.S. case, one of 300 congressmen. Yeah. 300 so what you've, what you've essentially done is created an, an oligarchy, a strong oligarchy. Well, a strong oligarchy for a tiny, tiny country. You can yeah. do democratic dispersion and still have people of great ambition in a giant country like America. But in a tiny country, if you do democracy, it just makes everyone objectively irrelevant. So mm-hmm. what you're trying to do is with a tiny base of 2 million people, like again, this is like you know less than most US states, create the sense of individual importance so that when you go to Brussels and you talk to European Union parliament member, you don't feel inferior, but superior, mm-hmm. right? Because otherwise you are a vassal of Brussels. So that's one. Uh, I already mentioned the International Retreat Center. Number three would be uh, basically try to invite over to Ljubljana University at extremely favorable remuneration. I'm talking $200,000, $300,000 a year. American professors. Get the old Nobel Prize winners and get uh, the young contrarians who haven't completely canceled themselves. Create an English-speaking university, brand it very smoothly, and uh, try to convince you know American and European students that actually this is the new best school in Europe. You actually try to make your foreign-focused university the main one. Like Again, this is the second proposal that focuses on the international environment. Why? because Slovenians currently send their aspirations to Brussels or even to Washington. So the only way you can convince Slovenians that we matter is actually by hacking our intuitions and convincing us that we have things that matter here. Mm-hmm. Because, and the only way we get that is if foreigners tell us we have things that matter here, right? Slovenia, mm-hmm. again, is not China. It actually always has to be international. If you look at a map of Europe and the number of languages spoken by a median person you look at such a map, you realize, oh, the tiny countries are the most, you know, polyglot countries. They're the countries where people speak the most languages. Why? Well, yeah. practicality, right? You speak your domestic language, you speak English, and you speak the languages of the major economies that surround your country. So that would be the, th- the third measure. Um, I think, you know, the fourth measure would be uh, basically, like, basically, if you could somehow arrange for it, if you could somehow arrange for it, um, like a proper, like like a proper. I mean, this one is much trickier, but like some some kind of defense industry that is serving the Western European market, like a very niche product, or something comparable to CERN, like an international scientific effort in your country. Uh, the fourth one would be, look, Ljubljana is going to be our one city. If we're very lucky, we can get it to one million people. Just build and learn to love skyscrapers and build a subway, even if it makes no sense to have a subway in a town of 200,000 people. Believe me, you're trying to sort of make it a self-fulfilling prophecy. Uh, and, you know, with these four things, Slovenia might be a well-regarded city-state in 60 years, Mm -hmm. right? And people will perceive it as a city-state, even though, of course, it's not just a single city. 
But that's kind of the way in which I think that um, you would have local Slovenian intellectuals rapidly rise to prominence because of their personal relationship with the high quality human capital that you've poached and brought to Slovenia. You would have Slovenian politicians who actually matter, who buddy buddy with international elites and end up being recognized by international elites as people that matter and themselves believe themselves to be you know, important enough to be on the steering committee of this new pseudo Bilderberg group that you've built around Lake Bled, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you would have uh, people in the Western world wanting to vacation there. You would have Russians wanting to vacation there. And you would hopefully balance Russian, Chinese, and Western interests because Slovenia is kind of like at the edge of the Western world. It could aspire to be some kind of Switzerland. Its geography is less favorable, uh, but it could, it could do very well for itself in that regard. Yes. Militarily, though, there's, there's no really good solution for it. So you, you, you just uh, you hope you're lucky. Yeah. Yeah, it's a it's it's a very very interesting thought experiment. Um, you, you also but, see why it would be unpopular in Eastern Europe. It would just be seen as favoring the already entrenched and favoring the already rich. Even though yeah. I would claim that objectively, it's the kind of deal where current elites agree to it because they believe their own status is increased, which does happen. However, because the stakes of the game are higher, the incompetent elites are quickly replaced by the harsh competition that happens. Exactly. I think the the idea that you can have an eliteless society, you know, has not really been borne out by uh, by history. Um, uh, there, I think... there, there are two big experiments, right? There's the mm -hmm. classless society in the Soviet Union and the middle class society in the United States, also a classless society in theory. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, you know, one of these has failed. We'll see about the other one. Yeah, exactly. We're not going to say which, but yeah. Oof, um, oof. So subversive. It has to, we have to have something subversive in this episode. I think we've been we've been quite above board up until now, uh, but now is the point where it gets really subversive. Um, I mean, we've been talking about different forms of uh, essentially oligarchy. You've in yes. this experiment, you've been a, a very powerful uh, overlord who who kind of through them through his mighty pen and his his army of followers decides what's going to go on. Um, there's something called the the iron law of oligarchy, which is quite uh, quite uh, beloved in the in the uh, dark circles that I travel in. Um, there's also, you know, the, the teachings, the teachings of, of Curtis Yarvin, which are also very uh, popular in, in, the, in the circles that I travel in. Um, is there is some form of oligarchy, some form of kind of concentrated power, the most effective way to govern? Or is that just kind of a, an edge case? Are there situations where uh, kind of the distributed, wide, wide ranging, um, I would say unaccountable in a way, just because of the, the fact that, you know, if you have kind of decentralized power, it's very hard to, to say who is in charge. Um, can that work? <laughs> because that's essentially what we have. Uh, or is it is it a flawed system in itself? Because that's that's a that's a big question at the moment. Well, I, I think, you know, all societies have very strong oligarchic elements. That's inescapable. Mm -hmm. Right. And uh, there's like very good there's very good uh, work done on this by uh, sociologists from the 1900s, people like Wilfred Pareto, Moshka, who I think Curtis Yarbrough is a fan of. Um, and it's something also like modern political science when it's honest acknowledges. Right. Like, mm -hmm. you know, what is populism? The fear of populism is the fear that spontaneous outbreaks of democracy are going to happen. 
right? <laughs> so that's that's what it actually is. And uh, I think all societies have a mix of, you know, autocratic, oligarchical, and democratic elements, right? Mm-hmm. So there are democratic elements in all societies. I guarantee you right now, the Chinese Communist Party is trying to keep up economic growth because they believe correctly that the perception of the middle class of China is that the Communist Party is legitimate because it made China strong and rich. So as long Mm -hmm. as the Communist Party continues to do that, they're legitimate. Is that not an element of democratic oversight? Whether or not voting is happening, I would Mm -hmm. claim it clearly is. And clearly there's an autocratic element with Xi Jinping. And clearly there's an oligarchical element with the business networks, the generals of the PLA, but most importantly, the Communist Party of China. Now, I'm not going to analyze the United States, but it's not controversial to say that the U.S. has monarchical, oligarchical, and democratic elements. So here we're talking about what is the right mix. And when we talk about regimes such as, you know, uh, Tsarist Russia or uh, Athens, you know, democratic Athens or Republican Rome, we're talking about different mixes of essentially coexisting modes of coordination and governance, right? It's a complex structure always even the simplest seeming dictatorship has intricate machinery behind it mm-hmm. right like if, if one doesn't think that like if you imagine the power of the pharaoh actually rested on administering a complex irrigation system an army that has to stay loyal to you and a very powerful priesthood that forms the foundation of the theocracy where you are the pinnacle of it if that's not complex i don't know what is i personally am unsure whether i could manage being pharaoh it's like probably the most cognitively demanding task of 2000 BC um, that you can have. Uh, So I am a fan of functional systems. What does this mean? I I kind of just care if the system works on its own terms. I'm more ambiguous or um, agnostic on what the purpose of the system is. Like when I analyze an army and I call it a functional army, I don't, I'm not saying that it's moral or immoral, that it's conquering other countries. I just say, you are fulfilling the function of being an army. This is like, objectively speaking, good at what it's supposed to be. So I think Western governments are currently non-functional. They are bad at what they're supposed to be. Mm-hmm. I don't think that they should necessarily morph into China, but I think they should instead become good at what they are, right? Mm-hmm. So I would say that at the very least, uh, the civil service, it ends up being oligarchical either way. Have you ever seen um, the show Yes Minister or Yes Prime Minister? No. Oh, it's a very good British show. You would you would enjoy it. I recommend watching a few episodes. It's basically constantly civil servants uh, scheming around an elected politician to get their way. Mm. That's the normal operation of most Western countries. Uh, but the civil servants have dropped in quality over time. You know, we're not dealing with, you know, you know, the dull brother, the dolls brothers. It's not the 1950s anymore. Uh, we have very narrow people, risk averse people, uh, people that haven't, you know, thought about the world that do not feel personal responsibility about what happens next. Mm. That don't feel personal power to do something. They just view themselves as playing the game. Right. Um, so I think that. In principle, in principle, some type of elitism is inevitable, and you can have a republican or monarchical form of that elitism. 
right? Mm -hmm. You can have 12 people in a room discuss what's going to happen in public, or you can have 12 people in a room discuss what's going to happen in private. And maybe that's the real distinction between, you know, a monarchy and a, and, and a republic in a way. It's like, is this supposed to be for the public benefit or are we bypassing the public benefit for our benefit? The key issue, say, with, you know, the oligarchs of Russia after privatization was that they were arguably auctioning off parts of Russian society so that they would have a comfortable life in London. Like mm -hmm. that's a... You know, that's a moral hazard. That's a, a clash of interests, right? In a straightforward, almost business sense. Um, so I think that if you have a relatively low trust elite and a low quality elite, something like a monarchical structure is necessary. Singapore could never have been built by a committee. It needed to be built by Lee Kuan Yew. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, Feudalism could only be instituted by Charlemagne, never a committee of nobles who were disagreeing with each other, right? Even though feudalism itself was like a relatively decentralized system compared to, say, uh, you know, uh, Eastern Rome that maintained, you know, the Byzantine Empire that maintained an imperial bureaucracy. That was a more centralized system compared to Frankish feudalism. Um, I think at that point, you need a small group of elites enforcing their will on other elites. So a more monarchical structure. And when you have a relatively high trust setup, then something like a republic can work. Can you imagine a speech in parliament, British parliament, for example, mm -hmm. given with the primary intent to convince the other people in the room to vote a certain way, not the general public? Mm -hmm. Okay, that, that's what British parliament was a few hundred years ago, like 150 years ago. Do you expect the quality of argument to be higher or lower if someone is speaking to their fellow parliament members versus speaking for the cameras. Like I would actually expect like the, the, the reasoning to be better, right? I would expect the arguments to be better. And of course they can then be reported to the public, but it's really at one point, you know, parliament was supposed to be the place where things are deeply discussed, right? You, I do believe in dialogue. I do believe in discussion. I do believe in um in like the ability for, for new ideas to change people's minds about what should be done and where their allegiances should lie and where their true material or other interests, spiritual interests, cultural interests lie. So I do find value in that Republican system. Uh, so I basically said all functional societies are relatively like, you know, top heavy. Is there a relevant democratic element? And I think that, you know, I think that the democratic element kind of rests is perhaps best captured in uh, the mandate of heaven, this Chinese concept, which you, you might have heard of. Or mm -hmm. Yeah, could you, yeah. could you go into it a bit? Yes, it's divine right of kings, but the Chinese were very different about it than you know, Europeans. They were not just that there's a particular lineage of people who will rule in perpetuity, but that if there are successful rebellions or great natural disasters, this is a sign from heaven itself that this dynasty has lost favor and that you should install a new, a new dynasty. This broad perception of legitimacy being something that can be ultimately retracted in emergencies, I think that's the strongest democratic element. It's this sort of like, are you perceived as legitimate by everyone? Because guess what? If you're not perceived legitimate by the general population, it's difficult to be an individual 
working for the government. You are, as a tax collector or as a soldier, going to be very unpopular among your other friends if you're working for an illegitimate government. If you are, you know, a, a businessman or a merchant and you're unpopular among the city members for supporting an illegitimate regime, well, your, your life is also made difficult. Even if you're working in the literal White House, what your friends and family think about you impacts you. So this, this gets close to popularity, but it's not popularity. It's like, it's, it is in fact legitimacy or illegitimacy. People might really dislike a government that they perceive as legitimate, and they will objectively behave differently around that government than they would around, say, even a popular but moderately illegitimate government. There's this hard-to-capture quality of human behavior that I think is, uh, is inescapable for, for all governments. So there's a way in which possibly an element of democratic theory is, is just very deeply correct. Um, not, it's not quite the consent of the governed, but it's something like the recognition of the governed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so this is kind of the, the difference, even if you're in a, a kind of dictatorship where, you know, Ceausescu or, you know, Tito, um, you would have, uh, you would kind of have to, you know, understand the legitimacy of the government, even if you were struggling against it in private. And you know, you know the history of Romania better than I do, but there are certainly periods where Ceausescu was very popular and very unpopular different parts of his reign, essentially. Yes, but he was he was always yeah, so he, legitimate. Right, until right. until well, he wasn't. Until the end. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Right. I, I think well, this, he lost this, the mandate of heaven. <laughs> yes, it was it's quite a it's quite a, a an interesting even today, we still have conversations about that, that fateful that fateful day, you know, um, a lot of people don't think it was it was the way to go. But yeah, this is, you know, <laughs> yeah, um, can't really can't really go back to that moment. Um, another thing I want to talk to you about, and I think this kind of plays into into what we were speaking about up to this point, is is prestige and kind of high status, and how that um, that that ties into legitimacy. At one point, um, it's it's not the equivalent of political legitimacy, but it is in a way the equivalent of either uh, elite legitimacy or intellectual legitimacy. Um, and this also kind of plays into the the idea of truth because you see this mostly happening now in uh, in the U.S. You know, you kind of have this this splintering between two factions where um, truth exists. Uh, one one sort of truth exists for one faction, another sort of truth exists for for the other faction. Very very little overlap in what is considered kind of to be legitimate, uh, either intellectual authority or legitimate prestige, even. Um, so I, I wonder what what the the idea of um, of kind of how is prestige morphing at the moment because I see it in a way as kind of the rise of a counter elite because the second mm -hmm. faction is building its own version of of you know mythology because it's all it's no one no one actually owns the truth but they own competing mythologies and they're all now kind of being built. Um, and I'm curious kind of how this you know is there a tipping point in which one might take over or what, what's uh, your perspective on this dynamic? I think that intellectual legitimacy moves more slowly than intellectual quality, right? It does, it does, it is drawn towards it over time. Who tends to win the arguments, who tends to be, um, who tends to win the arguments, who tends to be, uh, you, you, you know, um, who tends to be able to produce evidence, who tends to have the associations with the most you know, interesting thinkers. Um, so 
but let's remember the intellectual, you know, Harvard has and Yale and the Ivies, they have a literal physical endowment, mm-hmm. but they also have an intellectual endowment. A lot of the authority of these schools arises from a time when they were divinity schools for the ministers of various, uh, various American religious factions like Congregationalists, Quakers, all of that. The fact that prestige survived from an era of a predominantly Christian society, even at times borderline theocratic, like New England was, to an era where it's, you know, it's not intensely secular, but it's definitely intensely post-religious, uh, should cause one to be pessimistic about where do, uh, you know, where do, um, like how fast or slow intellectual legitimacy updates. There's a thing I've, uh, there's a term I've coined called Stigler's tax. Stigler's tax says whatever intellectual discovery is described by academia will eventually be credited to academia. Mm-hmm. So I think even right now, the big winners are going to be of the fresh crop of ideas we see online are not going to be the people originating the ideas or people first promoting them, but the most official and legitimate person to first endorse these ideas, mm-hmm. right? That's going to be the biggest winner. Say if Steven Pinker right now wrote a book summarizing the content of Slate Star Codex, crediting Scott Alexander at the start in like big, bold letters, I guarantee you in five years, nearly all of those ideas would primarily be attributed to Stephen Pinker, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it's really hard to notice, um, say, there are things like this that have already happened, such as uh, in the rationalist community, some ideas that Elias Rudkowski came up, came up with were later treated by, you know, less wacky people, more academic people with the right PhDs and everything who credited Eliezer Yudkowsky explicitly, yet they rose in prestige much more than Yudkowsky did, right? Yudkowsky kind of stayed at this level of a, let's call him a science fiction author rather than a fan fiction author, because I do think people treat him better than they treat a typical fan fiction author, uh, despite him coming up with a lot of these relevant ideas that shape the so-called rationalist community, which I think is one example of, a, of an online generative space, right? Um, a partial counterexample, I, I think, to this is, is sort of like actually Curtis Yarwin, where because he's controversial, people don't want to claim his ideas. So I actually think that right now he has higher prestige than he would have been were he a non-controversial blogger with very good ideas back in 2009. I think people are happy to continue crediting him with the ideas, partially to distance themselves. So in a weird way, I think that, you know, uh, per quality of writing, um, Kurt has got more intellectual legitimacy over the last 15 years. Uh, but even there, you have interesting examples such as, such as uh, Balaji, right? Balaji's uh, standing rose much faster. And he, of course, both have his own, had his own ideas and borrowed ideas from others, crediting others. Uh, but like his rise was, was even faster and non-controversial. Uh, though, of course, at that point, he's, he's, he wants you're picking fights with the New York Times, you know, it's like contrarians within contrarians, right? Like you always have like a smaller and more niche circle where there's an even more intense contrarian con- going contrary to the original contrarian. I'm sure the New York Times views itself as being contrary to something as, as weird as weird as that might seem uh, to everyone. Um, 
Yes, there's the, definitely um, an interesting ecosystem kind of on the internet, which is also includes an anonymous spaces and on the internet. Because there's a lot of people, uh, and I probably would include myself in this because I've kind of been in these spaces for for a long time, who are um, kind of conduits of you know absorbing ideas from these spaces uh, and then translating them or kind of trying to elevate them a little bit and kind of give them a face or, 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 you know, just be, just be kind of a, a catalyst for, for, you know, at least fractions of what's interesting in these spaces to come out to the light. And kind of, that's kind of also why I have this podcast. I include anonymous users also, you know, people with mm-hmm. names and faces and kind of try to, to bridge the gap. You know, there's just quite a lot of obviously wacky and weird stuff happening in these spaces, but there's also kind of freedom of, of anonymity that allows you to go down the rabbit hole and, and, you know, maybe find some, some golden nuggets and, and kind of, uh, yeah, to, to, um, in, increase the, the amount of, of, of viable knowledge in the world. Um, I'm, I'm curious what you think about anonymity and, you know, if it, is it uh, a feature of, of our present, of our future? Do you think anonymity is going to be more important in the future or um, will, will people kind of go back to, to yeah, I don't know, be, being themselves? Well, um, I think it's become common wisdom that anonymity is bad for society. I think it was amazing. I think we had a great period of anonymity and pseudonymity, pseudonyms especially, right? Mm-hmm. You have a separate identity that you maintain over several years that builds its own reputation and all of that. I think that was an amazing intellectual time period. I think it's gonna be remembered as a flourishing, uh, an intellectual flourishing. When they write the intellectual history from 2000 to 2020, it's going to be very internet focused. It's not going to be very academia focused, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, at least when it's written 100 or 200 years from now. I agree with my, I, I disagree with my cypherpunk friends, however, on whether it continues to be viable. I think we are in a very centralizing internet with enforced identification and the equivalent of a Western social credit score nearly inevitable. So mm-hmm. I think we are moving away from anonymous and pseudonymous discourse. I note that there were time periods before where anonymity and pseudonymity were intensely intellectually generative. Let's remember the Federalist Papers of the United States were written pseudonymously. Right? Mm-hmm. The intellectuals of the Enlightenment and the uh, intellectuals of periods before the Enlightenment, especially when talking about politics and religion, would be often pseudonymous, anonymous due to censorship, um, due to fear of legal persecution. And I guess today, you know, you might have other types of fears, even if it's not explicitly a legal risk uh, that, you know, narrow down the conversation. But these were followed by periods of the pseudonymous uh, coming to have names. So I think that right now we are entering the mature stage of this cycle where uh, people who have made peace with society, know to live in this society, even having, after having understood what the society is, right? So if you can, you can understand a society, but not be too bitter so that you can still participate in it, including its elite culture to some extent, I feel like that is the only option that, that really allows you to shape it. So I think that the people who will learn to navigate this media landscape and have a symbiosis with the New York Times rather than an adversarial relationship, even if it's a symbiosis where in the long run, the New York Times 
loses and their Substack wins, uh, those are the people that are going to benefit immensely. Uh, arguably, for example, Matthew Iglesias being among the top people on, a sub, on Substack is already proof of this. You can't be more establishment than the founder of Vox, yet mm-hmm. you can still receive 300k a year by being a, a blogger on Substack. Like, isn't it bizarre that among the most successful people are former journalists, offering therefore a defection of former journalists from newspapers and magazines, at least if they're star journalists, to blogging, glorified blogging, with a slightly better payment processor. You could see this as the ultimate victory of bloggers, or you could see it as the ultimate defeat of bloggers. Either way, it's not pseudonymous. It's not anonymous. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I feel like um, a, a lot of people either have this you know, completely anonymous uh, vibe or they want to just detonate on impact. And I think, you know, like you said, people who are going to manage to navigate these waters are going to be very useful. Um, maybe kind of in a, in a bit of a Straussian vein where um, you, you kind of have to ease people into these ideas. With well, uh, well, it's also doing for the public good, right? The public is, in fact, correct to question you know, don't trust Greeks bearing gifts, right? Don't trust, you know, if a very smart, very critical intellectual that clearly hates society comes to you with a shining Trojan horse, you really shouldn't let that Trojan horse into the gates of your mind. You really shouldn't. So in Mm -hmm. fact, showing ideas with obviously good faith intentions towards society is super important, right? Society Mm -hmm. is correct to limit uh, ideas from their origin, right? So I, I'm a big fan of like intellectual tolerance of eccentrics and so on, and even the elevation of them. Uh, but there has to be a pro-sociality underneath it, right? Like I do, ideas do have, you know, especially for me where, you know, great founder theory, right? Mm-hmm. Ideas often have immense impact through great founders, right? Julius Caesar and Napoleon were both imitating Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great was arguably, you know, imitating uh, Achilles or or, or Odysseus. Mm -hmm. Therefore, it's quite plausible that, you know, Homer himself, if he existed, was a great founder via inspiring Alexander the Great centuries later. And, you know, Alexander the Great continues to shape our world till today through people Mm -hmm. like Napoleon and George Washington and all of that. Exactly. Um, th- there's one more uh, macro pattern that I wanted to, to chat to you about. It's something that I've been thinking about lately, and um, it's it's a it's a bit worrying. But I'm curious what what your uh, take is on this. It's it's the fertility crisis, or or whichever way you'd like to to look at it. You know, especially in the Western world, where um, you know, for you know, physiological, psychological, material, you know, cultural reasons, uh, people are are just kind of have have stopped having children. Um, mm-hmm. or, or having children at a, you know, at a sub-replacement rate or a very deep sub-replacement rate. You can see this all over the world. I mean, Japan is kind of the, the star example, but then you have Southern Europe, which also is, is probably the, the, the biggest uh, delta between you know, what it used to be maybe 40 years ago and what it is now. Um, I'm curious what you think the implications of this will be kind of on, on, on geopolitics, on, uh, on, on the state of our world maybe 50, 100 years from now. Well... Basically, I think that, yeah, I think the demographic transition has gone farther than anyone expected. Uh, I think outside of sub-Saharan Africa, you're even seeing demographic transitions in countries that are not yet rich in countries such as the Middle Eastern countries. Mm 
or Latin American countries or places, uh, you know, places like India. If you break down India by provinces, many provinces that are still very poor have, for t have TFR rates of 1.7 or 1.8. In other mm -hmm. words, not that different from developed countries. Uh, but it's especially bad, as you pointed out, in, say, Japan, Taiwan, South Korea, uh, the wealthy parts of China. Uh, the United States seems to do a little bit better, though arguably the U.S. is kind of cheating uh, because the high fertility is uh, by the immigrants rather than the people raised in the society. Uh, and Europe is obviously like not doing very well and hasn't for, for a few decades. So first off, I think the demographics matter immensely for the productive labor force, but that's sort of a boring, normal economist take. The second one is, I think the f differential fertility is an immensely important driver of cultural change, and this is not usually understood. If you, in the extreme, continued current demographic trends, the United States 500 years from now would be completely dominated by the Amish, a group that currently, you know, only has sort of two or 300,000 adherents, but is doubling every generation. You know, we recently learned about the power of exponents in the pandemic. Mm -hmm. You can, in fact, apply this to demographics, right? There's also historical arguments that Christians overtook the Roman Empire mostly through a reproductive advantage rather than a cultural advantage. It's, it's difficult to make that argument conclusively because obviously ancient states didn't have demographic data. Arguably, modern states are far worse at tracking demographic data than they pretend to be. Uh, it's an open question how many unregistered births happen in China, for example. There might be 100 million more Chinese than are formally acknowledged because people would, under the one-child policy, you know, hide additional births. And you would kind of be an illegal immigrant from the womb if your parents <laughs> hid you, right? Um so even modern states are arguably not that good at completely tracking immigration, you know, births, deaths, immigration, all of that. So even modern demographic data should be uh, suspect. So that's a more interesting one. There's a, a change, a, a cultural change can be driven by fertility. And then the final one is, you know, I think population size matters intensely for sense of importance. Mm -hmm. that what we described earlier. Population quality is very important, right? Florence and Athens are not the biggest cities in the world. But I feel in the modern era, the economies of scale of information technology, especially, give a strong advantage to billion plus users. If you can create for yourself a gated internet with 1 billion users, the other 6 billion users don't really matter. It's not another order of magnitude. China can develop a fully rich and self-sufficient internet infrastructure and can expand it. India could do so. Maybe, maybe the European Union could do so. Maybe, maybe the Anglosphere can continue to do so. Right? The Anglosphere started with a very international internet that is now starting to fragment. First with China, Russia, but even the European Union and the U.S. are taking measures to close down their internet from mm. geopolitical rival centers, right? Such as, you know, marking things, fake news, or, or uh, even blocking websites and so on. So I feel that the cultural power of a large population will continue to be felt. So say in a century, I wouldn't be surprised if all the most popular YouTubers 
and all the most popular, you know, whatever the equivalent of YouTuber is or filmmaker or musician in 2090, I wouldn't be surprised if all of them are from Africa, like mm -hmm. 90% of them, right? Simply because that's where the cultural market exists. Whether we like it or not, after the Industrial Revolution, we entered the period of mass production, not just in cars and iPhones, uh, but in ideas and in culture, especially in culture, right? Um, so we have a mass culture rather than an elite culture. And uh, that's mm -hmm. going to persist. So, you know, these changes are important. I also think that the labor, together with the labor force, that's going to be important. Um, it seems to me like, it seems to me that the price of labor will inevitably go up. However, there will not be innovation in such a world. A much older world has fewer young people, fewer workers, but I actually don't expect this to be a world of exceptionally good automation, only incremental improvements in existing automation. Why? A very old society, a society of old people, where the elderly have social authority and determine what's legitimate or not, is never structurally, it's structurally incapable. It's never a society that's friendly to innovation. Mm -hmm. Therefore, no matter how much we need the robot nurses in the nursing homes, the robot nurses won't come because we will simply create a society where that kind of innovation is not a good personal career decision. Mm -hmm. So in, in an interesting way, maybe uh, there's hope here because if there's you know supply and demand, possibly this means much higher wages and much better living conditions for young workers. Like possibly eventually their labor is just going to become so scarce that it's going to be the more important thing than say all of this, you know, wonderful technology that we have available. Mm -hmm. So um, we're, we're setting our course for a bit more sclerosis than, than we already have. A bit more sclerosis, but maybe eventually, you know, if they're not taxed too much, uh, a healthy, well-off working class. Mm -hmm. Like maybe the working that... class will get richer a hundred years from now, which is, I think, something no one's predicting. Yeah, yeah, it's it's definitely not on trend, but but hopefully. Um, before I let you go, I have a question of the show that I want to ask you. Um, it's, um, do you have a a thinker, a writer, um, someone that you're familiar with that might have inspired you, uh, that you want people to know about, or or think you know um, offers offers some some food for thought uh, for our listeners. I really admired the work of the American historian Carol Quigley, and he has a great book uh, titled The Evolution of Civilizations. Um, it's an interesting work, this macro-historical work that compares different societies and you know how, how they solve these various issues of you know, coordination, fertility, defense, intellectual production. I think he's a great example of an integrative thinker, someone that realizes all of these social systems are interconnected. Today, Far too many intellectuals focus in on one tiny area. They say, like, they think about markets, or they think about racial inequality, or they think about housing policy. And they think that being very, very narrow makes them very realistic. But actually, it makes them very unrealistic, because none of these things occur in a vacuum. They all occur in a complex social situation. Like, the reason the housing market in San Francisco is hopeless has nothing to do with housing. It's a side effect of the political economy 
of how the city council of San Francisco ends up being selected and how it ends up being run, which is a side effect of what is cool and interesting to homeowners in San Francisco, which is a side effect of migration patterns and might loop back all the way to housing policy, but note how many detours you have to take before you reach that point. Mm-hmm. It seems so. like the, the initial thing is, uh, you know, in a way it's tied to prestige as well, you know, where, what is, what is high status and, uh, and that's, it's quite a, a, but I guess that's, that's another, another a narrow thing. So, you know, it's probably, it's probably more complex than that. Um, thank you so much, Samo. Um, where can people find you? Is there um, kind of a, a link a platform where, where is the, the best place to find your work? Uh, you know, for now I'm, active on Twitter. So you can find uh, my Twitter account at at samoburia, and then also my website, samoburia.com. You can find a collection of all my essays on that website. Uh, You can also find me on YouTube where I do these short lectures and I repost most of the podcasts I appear on. Excellent. Well, it was a pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much for coming. Yeah. Thank you for having me. I greatly enjoy this. If you like what you're hearing, want to see where I take it, and maybe want early access to episodes, bonus episodes, access to the AMA, or you just want to support the cause of dissident speech or my work in general, head to my Patreon at patreon.com slash aksubversive. Your donations are what keeps the lights on and makes the show possible, so thank you. <laughs>